You're listening to CTO Bob with Bob Pellerin. Welcome in. This is Bob Pellerin of CTO Bob Podcast. Today, on episode number 10, we'll be talking infrastructure as a service, and we'll be talking to Lilac Schoenbeck of Island. So in past episodes, we've mentioned SaaS, which is Software as a Service. Today, we'll be getting into Infrastructure as a Service, which is IaaS. If you could get us started by giving us an overview of what Infrastructure as a Service is. So Infrastructure as a Service basically mimics the kind of resources that you would otherwise buy on-premise at a sort of infrastructure level. So think of when you would additionally add servers or storage to your environment because you needed additional capacity to host more virtual machines or more applications. Infrastructure as a service is a way of buying that off-premise in a very flexible and agile manner. So, for example, if you said I needed the capacity to store another or run another 100 VMs, and I need it tomorrow. An infrastructure as a service vendor like Island would tell you, okay, that's fine. You know, we've got that space and we can we can host those 100 VMs for you starting tomorrow. And if you need to pull them out next month because you're done with them, we can spin them back down and, and return those resources to us. Um, but as distinct from some of the other layers of software as a service or platform as a service, infrastructure as a service sort of goes up to and including the operating system level. So typically, the provider will provide you with a copy of that operating system, but it doesn't go all the way up the stack to the point that you have an instance of an application or access to a multi-tenant instance of an application like SaaS would do, or even some other parts of the stack like platform as a service often does, providing you, for example, development environment or a testing environment. This is really the raw resources. Could you tell us a little bit what vendors you're working with? For I imagine you have like the Microsoft and the Linux yeah, um, so we, we base our hardware, uh, we have some best-of-breed hardware vendors, including Cisco, um, providing us the UCS servers as well as networking gear. We work with VMware for the hypervisor. Um, we made that selection and decided to become a vCloud-based provider because of the resilience of that platform, some of the performance benefits of it, and the fact that, frankly, for a great deal of our customers, they're already VMware experts. So being able to interface with an environment that's really familiar and operates much the same way as, the, as their on-premise environment does is a real benefit. And then finally, of course, on the operating system level, we have a list that's far too long for me to read out. But let's just say there's a, dozens of flavors of Unix or Linux as well as Windows operating systems as well. Great. And what about the, the kind of tools when you go and you push this off to the cloud? What kind of tools do I use to manage and maintain my environment? You know, that's a really interesting question. It's a it's a very good question because it's something that people don't always ask about the cloud. But managing the resources that are out there, which is everything from how do I initiate or, or spin up another VM? How do I take down a VM? How do I add resources to any existing workloads and so forth? And even understanding what is the performance I'm getting from that environment? How is my capacity looking on a specific VM? Am I running out? Or even all the way out to how can I predict what my bill might be at the end of the month? All these things aren't necessarily straightforward with public clouds. And the reason is that most public clouds either use, try to sort of adopt or hack together something from their own management tools and present it to their customers, or simply assume that somebody's going to be a power user and therefore be able to do a great deal with scripts and so forth. The way that we've approached is a little bit different. We're very much targeting a set of the customers in the market that we know cannot afford to develop or hire a whole set of power users just to manage their cloud footprint. What, what we've done, therefore, is build out our own portal that 
takes the best of the VMware underlying environment and presents it in a very straightforward and clean and frankly, really quite beautiful way. And what we found is that by using, by interfacing with that portal, customers have a much easier time managing their cloud footprint, and it doesn't really tax their existing IT team in the way that some other environments might. So in other words, you're reducing the IT resources needed at the client side. Exactly, exactly. Because most folks, you know, even though you do need those additional resources because business is booming or some new initiative is started and you need that additional space, you don't necessarily get to hire somebody and say, you know what, Jim, it's all you. Go ahead and spend 24-7 managing your cloud footprint, making sure I'm not buying too much or too little, making sure every resource is sufficiently allocated. You know, most of the time people have day jobs, and this is something they have to add on top of it. So this is really a way to improve on your scalability, because if you have internal servers and internal licenses and internal uh, bandwidth, you you have limitations. At some point, you only have so many physical servers to handle VMs. You only have so much bandwidth on your backbone and so forth internally. Can you tell me a little bit about scalability that's available through your product? I would say that for most of our customers, what it feels like unlimited scalability, right? Because we have such a large footprint in so many different locations. We have eight data centers around the world, which means that you can certainly, I would challenge anyone to, to test our scalability at any one of these locations. I'm pretty sure most folks would find that challenging. So there's a lot of ability to grow within a single location as well as to grow to other locations. Um, And sometimes there's a lot of reasons why somebody might want to be located in multiple places in the cloud. For disaster recovery reasons, there's a lot of benefits to having a location that is elsewhere from where you traditionally sort of have your resources running. So if you're a West Coast-based company of West Coast-based data centers, God forbid there's a power outage. You know, I lived through uh, the the outage on the eastern seaboard a few years back, I guess now 10 years back, and it really impressed upon me how useless it would have been to have a disaster recovery site that was 10 miles away because the whole eastern seaboard was out of luck. Um, So for DR purposes, people often say, well, you know what, I'm going to do my disaster recovery on the other coast. Um, Similarly, we have multiple locations in EMEA, for example. The other reason that you might actually want to expand and be a little bit more flexible around the world uh, is because your customer base might be there. So we often work with software companies or, or even any other company that has an app that's outward facing to a set of business customers or a set of consumer customers that might be located somewhere around the world. So if you are a California-based software provider, but your software is touching customers in the UK, it may make sense to host a copy of it there so that latency doesn't become an issue for them. Well, other benefits that I can come up with are things like power savings, uh, obviously bandwidth utilization. Like you were saying, if you're uh, hosting, in effect, quite a few applications that are outward facing, whether to their clients or the general public, you're not being hit with uh, all that extra traffic. Yep. So this brings me to one question that I had from uh, an external reader uh, about compliance uh, regulations, different, obviously, Depends on the industry you're in, HIPAA compliance and whatnot, and you're not in the healthcare space, then it really doesn't affect you. But uh, I don't know if you could talk about uh, the different compliances that you can follow. Sure. And, you know, it turns out, like, while we traditionally think of HIPAA and and Sarbanes-Oxley and these sort of very specific industries, a lot of companies have some workloads that touch PCI, for example, because they have something to do with credit card transactions or or even an ancillary relationship with medical information or something. So a lot of these compliance requirements are Um, more broad sweeping than you'd think. There's a few things that are critical when looking at a cloud from a compliance perspective. One is that the data centers themselves have to meet a fairly stringent checklist. And that's one thing that as Island goes out and 
opens up a new location, like we're opening up Singapore right now, one of the things that we have to do as we select a data center is just go through a checklist with them and make sure that the physical realities to meet the compliance requirements are in place, which means there's there's everything from the way the locks are on the doors and to who's allowed access and so forth. All these things are important to meeting compliance standards. And so we definitely check it out in every one of our environments and we meet re- compliance requirements in the US that are US-based and in the UK that are UK-based. Now, having said that, there's a second element, which is the the audit itself that occurs. And one of the things that most people find a little bit onerous about an audit process is that the cloud vendors don't often get engaged in that audit process. And usually it does require completing some sort of checklist or working with the auditor in order to make sure that the right kinds of paperwork are filled in and the right kinds of stamps and assurances are given. That's one thing that Island actually finds ourselves engaged with a great deal with our customers is when an audit does come through, we do actually help pick up the phone, talk to the auditor as needed, provide the right paperwork and so forth. And that tends to make things go a lot more smoothly, in part because the whole field of auditing is really growing and changing to accommodate what is an increasingly prevalent cloud footprint in most of the companies they're auditing. Now, how would you suggest that someone gets started with infrastructure as a service? I mean, what's the basic step to testing, feeling out for yourself? Um, You know, I actually think there's not there's nothing that IT people like more than getting their hands dirty in something. And so um, I actually think that's the right first approach. You know, if if a customer were coming to me and they said, look, we're, we're looking to expand our footprint. We sometimes we have a little bit of concern. Sometimes we just don't know how it works. There's two things you could do. One, you could start with a pay as you go uh, type situation where you're only paying for resources as you use them. Spin up a few VMs, see how it feels, run some test and dev type workloads, nothing that's super critical, and just get a sense for how that environment feels. I think everyone who who does this would be pleasantly surprised that on a platform like ours, that is a VMware-based platform, it's, it's really remarkably familiar. Now, the other thing that people often say is, well, I'm not sure, I'm not comfortable with the cloud, my management might not be comfortable with the cloud yet. And what I'll often tell them is, look, you know, there is an area of your business that might not be addressed where cloud could just really be a good value to you that not in replacement of existing workloads, but to help something that you otherwise aren't doing right, which is usually disaster recovery. Because most organizations treat disaster recovery like flossing, and they just keep saying, I'm going to do it tomorrow, and I'm not going to do it today. And at the end of the year, somebody checks and says, did you ever do that? And they say, well, next year, we'll get it done. What that means is that they're left open and vulnerable if something were to occur in their environment, either something localized, like some sort of hack or virus, or something that is a natural disaster or something like that. And so what we suggest is, you know what, you don't have a plan in place. Maybe start with something that feels low risk in as much as your current situation is very high risk and try to try to dabble in some DR in the cloud. It's really come a long way from the disaster recovery that we all remember five years ago even um, and can provide tremendous benefits for, for a fairly low price. Actually, if you could get a little bit into your disaster recovery as a service, I I feel like we've touched around the edges, but are we talking about a couple of strategic VMs that they just absolutely have to have running for, let's say, operations management or whatever widgets they're producing? Uh, Mm -hmm. Could you take those VMs, move them over to your services and use that as a disaster recovery solution? Uh, You could. I mean, typically what we find is that organizations do want to protect more than a couple. It tends to be, you know, a couple dozen. Um, But but what the the technology today, and we work with a company called Zerto for our disaster recovery um, solution, and they have a tremendous capability. Basically what it does is it's a, it runs both on, on the on-premise side and in the cloud. And what it does is it creates a sort of perpetual um, 
instance out in the cloud of your uh, workload. And that instance can be invoked. The failover can happen. And, and really, you measure the time between the moment you invoke the failover and the time that the, that the backup site or the DR site is, is up and running in minutes. I mean, literally, it can be two, three, five minutes easily. Um, and what that means is that you almost have no downtime. And that site is ready to go. It fails over to a live, completely configured environment. It's none of the olden days, pull it up from the tape, reboot it, or even boot the VM um, from a snapshot or anything like that. It actually will come up you know, in just a couple minutes later. And what that means is that you actually can press that button even in a time when you're just a little bit concerned that something might happen. One of the biggest issues with disaster recovery is that people are tentative about actually pressing the button. And the reason is that they have not tested their DR solution. They are worried that it might not work. And they're worried that they might incur some extraordinary fee or some extraordinary downtime if they press the button. It turns out with a solution like Zerto and with working with Island, we always ensure that we've done testing on the DR solution with our team, with our support team, make sure that that failover will happen exactly as you anticipate so that folks, when they see a hurricane coming in their region or they have a sense that something might go wrong, they know that pressing that button will incur a very small amount of additional cloud resource utilization, and they're confident that it's going to work with very little interruption to their business. So to us, that's a really compelling story. And I think when most people think of DR, they think of secondary locations and all kinds of tapes and people like digging things out of the back of their trunk. It's not like that anymore. It really can protect your business for a very low price in a way that's extremely resilient what is entailed in pressing the button. If you have well, virtual machines that are running on your solution and disaster strikes, fire, whatnot, what exactly is triggered? How is it triggered? Could you get into that? Well, there's a portal, a Zerto portal that you would have access to that basically says you select the machines and say fail over. And those machines could be in tiers. You could have a tier that's the super critical tier and then a second tier and a third tier and they could fail over in that order or according to different rules. But it really is as easy as a couple clicks. Now, we also know that a lot of times the person who was trained up to do that failover might be caught up in whatever disaster is going on, or everybody might not in any way be in a position to hit a portal up. You know, they might not have their laptop in front of them or internet connectivity. And so, of course, Island's priding ourselves on being first and foremost a service organization. You can give us a call and we'll press that button for you. We absolutely can be helpful in that kind of situation as well. Excellent. Well, thank you. I guess for the record, I do see a lot of firms out there that are absolutely terrified to find out what would happen if they push the proverbial button. I've seen endless examples of putting tapes back in and there's nothing on the tapes or they're mm -hmm. corrupted. It's good to know that this is an alternative. As you were saying, it certainly skips the whole point of having to restore because you literally have a secondary site, in effect, that's waiting there for you when you need it. Exactly. It's really amazing how, what kind of peace of mind this can bring to IT and to the business to know that they can do this. It's life changing, I think, and something that I still think the word is not out yet about what's possible in the DR arena now with the, with the advent of cloud. Now, is the solution good for small as well as large clients? It is, absolutely. I mean, we see a whole range at Island of different levels of customer. I think in some level, if you are the proud owner of 15 data centers, your disaster recovery solution might be an in-house solution because you can fail over to your own data center in Guam. But particularly to organizations that have one or two data centers, oftentimes very proximate to each other or less, for them, it's definitely the kind of thing that can be extremely valuable. 
The other thing we could do as well um, is we can actually perform the same sort of action across different elements of your cloud footprint. So if you are using the infrastructure as a service offering and you happen to be using it in California, oftentimes for compliance reasons or for business assurance reasons, people will want to have disaster recovery failover between cloud locations, and we can do that too. Let's talk about customer service in the cloud. Customer service is something that folks kind of overlook when when people go out and buy cloud services. And I think one of the reasons is that is that there's this impression that everything will always go smoothly at all times. And I think it's funny how optimistic IT people are when they are usually the first to recognize that rarely do things go right the first time. But it is just a sort of funny area because in cloud, customer service contracts are typically priced and agreed upon separately from the purchase of the cloud service itself. And it's a funny industry standard thing that's been going on. But anybody in IT will tell you the odds of them having to call technical support or have an engagement with somebody in customer service is pretty, pretty high um, for any kind of large scale anything, right? And that's one thing that we find people, you know, we did an EMA survey earlier this year, and we find that it's one area where people are, are getting disappointed in cloud is that when they do need help, that help isn't there. Because usually it's a ticket-based online system at best. And if you do want to have email communication, let alone phone call communications, that's often going to augment your bill pretty significantly on a monthly basis, say to the tune of 20 or 30 percent of your of your cloud bill every month, which is kind of extraordinary. So it's something that at Island we we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can serve our customers best. And, and like we said, we go out of our way to try to make the management of the environment as easy and as comfortable as possible. But if something were to come up, we have a support organization that is in the US and in the UK, you know, with our data centers. And these guys are certified technicians. They are they answer the phone, right? Every one of our customers gets access to phone support. And these guys are really committed to ensuring that whatever's going wrong can be fixed. Sometimes it's answering a a quick question that five minutes later, everything can be set right. And sometimes it's, you know, understanding a little bit more about your network or your configuration to ensure that that you can get to the bottom of what might be going wrong. Either way, our team is there and answering the phone. um, And we're pretty proud of that. But for us, you know, the fact that it's bundled in, that's part of the price, that's part of the service we're offering, is pretty interesting and significant. I know there's a lot of talk out there about infrastructure as a service being more or less a commodity. Could you give, give us a couple of pointers as to what to look for and what kind of questions to ask when you're looking at a provider? Yeah, I mean, that's great. That's great that you mentioned that. I, I think it is a, a, a natural segue then from the customer support discussion. I think I would, the CPU and the memory and the storage is sort of fundamentally going to look somewhat the same, right? However, customer support prices and service levels and so forth can vary wildly. The manageability of that environment to our discussion earlier about the portal it can be anything from something familiar and comfortable to something that requires a whole different skill set and sometimes a whole different team. And then finally, the area of pricing models. Clouds are often priced according to instances, which means that you have to sort of pick a small, medium, or large box. And what that means is that that runs a little bit differently than you you manage your on-premise environment, where you say, I've got this whole cluster full of resources, and I'm going to partition them out however I see fit. More memory to one, more storage to the other, we're all good. And that difference in model can mean a significant difference in price and inefficiencies. So I always say, like, if you can't describe that pricing model to your mom, that probably means that you're going to be spending a lot of time trying to identify what the right price and buying me- mechanism and so forth is for your company. And that that represents a little bit more tax and overhead for you in running that cloud. So I would say look for those three things, customer support, a straightforward pricing model, and the ability, uh, an environment you feel that your group can take on and manage comfortably. 
And those three things are far from commoditized in this space. This concludes our podcast for today. Thank you for joining us in our discussion about infrastructure as a service. This podcast is copyright 2014 and is written and produced by Bob Pellerin. (laughs) 